You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to improve your relationships, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. Along the way, trying to better inform the general public about mental health issues, as well as trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. All of that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Appreciate your listening in to this week's podcast, which was pre-recorded for airing on Wednesday evening, April the 27th. 2016. Well, undoubtedly the top mental health story of this past week, uh, certainly a very sad one, but a very important one. Uh, An article in the April 23rd edition of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, but uh, this, you know, was an article uh, basically from the New York Times that a lot of smaller papers Uh, picked up, the United States sees a stunning rise in suicide rate. Some federal data analysis revealed more middle-aged whites, particularly women, are killing themselves. Suicide in the United States has surged to the highest levels in nearly 30 years, according to this federal data analysis. There are increases in every age group except older adults. The rise was particularly steep for women. It was also substantial among middle-aged Americans, sending a signal of deep anguish from a group whose suicide rates had been stable or falling since the 1950s. The suicide rate for middle-aged women ages 45 to 64, jumped by 63% over the period of the study, while it rose by 43% for men in that age range, the sharpest increase for males of any age. The overall suicide rate rose by 24% from 1999 to 2014, according to the National Center for Health Statistics which released the study this past Friday. The increases were so widespread that they lifted the nation's suicide rate to 13 per 100,000 people, the highest since 1986. The rate rose by 2% a year starting in 2006, double the annual rise in the earlier period of the study. In all, 42,773 people committed suicide in 2014, compared with 29,199 in 1999. 
These statistics are extremely disturbing, and it's particularly sobering when you consider that just in the hour it takes this podcast to air, between three and four people will take their lives. It is really stunning to see such a large increase in suicide rates affecting virtually every age group. There is a link between suicides in middle age and rising rates of distress about jobs and personal finances. Researchers also found an alarming increase among girls aged 10 to 14, whose suicide rate, while still very low, has tripled. The number of girls who killed themselves rose to 150 in 2014 from 50 in 1999. American Indians, or Native Americans as they should be called, had the sharpest rise of all racial ethnic groups, with rates rising by 89% for women and 38% for men. White middle-aged women had an increase of 80%. The rate declined for just one racial group, black men and it declined for only one age group, men and women over 75. The data analysis provided fresh evidence of suffering among white Americans. Recent research has highlighted the plight of less educated whites, showing surges in deaths from drug overdoses, suicides, liver disease, and alcohol poisoning particularly among those with a high school education or less. The new report did not break down suicide rates by education, but researchers who reviewed the analysis said the patterns in age and race were consistent with that recent research and painted a picture of desperation for many in American society. The rise in suicide rates has happened slowly over many years. Federal health researchers said they chose 1999 as the start of the period they studied because it was a low point in the national suicide rate and they wanted to cover the full period of its recent sustained rise. The Federal Health Agency's last major report on suicide released in 2013, noted a sharp increase in suicide among 35 to 64-year-olds. But the rates have risen even more since then, up by 7% for the entire population since 2010, the end of the last study period, and federal researchers said they issued the new report to draw attention to the issue. While the National Institutes of Health funding for suicide prevention projects had been relatively flat, rising to $25 million in 2016 from $22 million in 2012, it was a small fraction of funding for research of mental illnesses, including mood disorders like depression, and I might add a paltry inadequate sum Now, the new federal analysis noted that the methods of suicide were changing. About one in four suicides in 2014 
involved suffocation, which includes hanging and strangulation, compared with fewer than one in five in 1999. Suffocation deaths are harder to prevent because nearly anyone has access to the means. Interestingly, death from guns fell for both men and women. Guns went from being involved in 37% of female suicides to 31% and from 62% to 55% for men. You recall on the last uh, podcast we talked about how there were efforts uh, underway at gun shops and shooting ranges in the uh, western states, especially the Rocky Mountain states, to curb gun-related suicides. Uh, So they may be a problem in specific areas where the rates will spike, but overall since 99 to 2014, those rates have come down, uh, which is definitely somewhat reassuring. Uh, But still, uh, as the article says, the statistics about suicide in the United States are stunning and extremely disturbing and sobering. So what to do about it? Well, the NIH or other public health agencies uh, are going to be limited as to how much funds they can throw at this issue. But even if they had unlimited funds, what's really necessary, in my opinion, is a change in the mindset as to how depression is screened for and treated. Let's take, for example, your annual physical exam with your primary care physician, your yearly checkup. There is routine testing and screening for several potential life-threatening long-term illnesses. As part of your annual physical exam, you'll have a battery of blood tests, and among those will be to check your blood sugar. Why is that? Well, to make sure it's not too high and you're not at risk for developing diabetes. Diabetes is a very serious illness, which if it develops and sets in, can set you up for many long-term consequences, uh, loss of sight, kidney failure, Uh, just to name a couple, and lifelong disability and uh, increased mortality. Also, uh, your blood tests will include checking for cholesterol. And why is that? Well, it's to see if you are at risk for developing cardiovascular disease, including heart attack or stroke, which again, obviously, uh, leads to increased uh, rates of mortality. But even though there are no blood tests for depression or x-rays, for example, a chest x-ray to see if there's any lung disease or anything like cancer, it's still very straightforward to screen for depression. And it should be done at each and every one of these visits. And it should be something that people feel comfortable going to see their physician about in between annual checkups, and when it's present, it should be treated, just like 
when a doctor finds that a patient's cholesterol is elevated and dietary changes and uh, exercise, if it's uh, if the advice to do it is followed, are not enough to lower the cholesterol, then guess what? The doctor is going to prescribe medication, prescribe medication to prevent serious consequences from a disease. Same with diabetes to get the blood sugar down. That's the way it should be with depression. You screen for it regularly and routinely. If it's there, you prescribe medication for it. We need to change the mindset among doctors and patients alike that depression needs to be screened for and treated when it's found, just like any of the other conditions. Well, we're going to take our first commercial break here, and when we come back, more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Understanding health insurance is becoming more challenging. If you currently have insurance, you've probably noticed that it costs more to see your doctor. And if you're able to keep your doctor, it takes longer to get an appointment. The bad news is this trend is projected to continue. Your costs will likely continue to rise, while your health care choice and access will continue to fall. The good news is Peachtree ENT Center has the answer to this problem. We believe in taking care of the whole patient, because healing is more than writing a prescription. We are committed to working with you, and we specialize in providing affordable care for patients without insurance, those who are underinsured, and those with high deductibles or catastrophic coverage, and we offer same-day appointments. You no longer have to choose between staying healthy and paying bills because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's web radio. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Right before the break, we were just talking about how the suicide rates have gone up in the United States. And in my opinion, depression should be screened for on a regular and routine basis to try to catch depression, treat it before someone loses their life to it and commits suicide. And this next article points out a perfect example of how this is not being done. 
and how there can be serious consequences from it. Uh, here, it, 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 the article talks about heart attack patients are more depressed but get fewer antidepressants um, compared to people who have not had a heart attack. Now, this was a research study presented at the Euro Heart Cares 2016 meeting back on uh, April the 16th. Uh, the research was done in Sweden, but Sweden is fairly comparable in as far as a modern industrialized society. Uh, the standard of living and level of health care, certainly comparable to the United States, if not arguably better. Uh, so I think the results certainly are relevant to looking at what happens to heart attack patients in our country. Stress-related disorders such as depression and exhaustion are increasingly common and have been the main reason for long-term sick leave in Sweden for more than a decade. Stress and depression are also known to be big risk factors for heart attack. And this connection was confirmed in the study. But what was new and astonishing was that heart attack patients less often receive treatment for depression. You wonder what the mindset is of the doctors. Well, of course you're depressed. You just had a heart attack. So why should we have to give you medication for it? Um, obviously, that's wrong. And that thinking needs to change. The research was a sub-study of a study which found that periodontitis increased the risk of having a first myocardial infarction or heart attack by 30%. You may recall hearing about this, that uh, gum infections and increased bacteria in the teeth and gums is an increased risk factor for heart disease. Now, this study showed uh, it looked at 805 patients, all younger than 75 years old, who had had their first heart attack, and then another 805 people who had not had a heart attack. They were the control group, and they were matched for age, gender, and where they lived. Detailed information was collected on stress, depression, and exhaustion, using well-established, validated questionnaires. Study participants were asked to grade the level of stress they felt at home and at work and about their economical situation. They were also asked about stressful events during the past year and their feeling of control in life, both at work and at home. The study participants were 62 years old on average, and 81% were men. The researchers found that 14% of patients had symptoms of depression compared to just 7% of controls. Symptoms of depression or exhaustion were associated with a doubled risk of heart attack. When the researchers looked at types of stress, they found that more patients than controls had experienced stress at home, 18% compared to 11%, and at work, 42% versus 32%. Even moderate levels of stress at home were associated with a doubled risk of heart attack. Now, 
Patients who had a heart attack had more stress both at work and at home. But interestingly, there was no difference between the two groups as regards to financial stress. Patients also reported that they had less control of their work situation. In addition, those who had a heart attack were more likely to be divorced, whereas people in the control group more often lived with a partner. When asked, were you angry during the last 24 hours, many more heart attack patients said yes compared to controls. It appears that stress in life can also trigger feelings of anger in patients who have had a heart attack. And you may or may not know that it's been discovered in research many, many years ago that there is an association between increased feelings of anger and hostility and coronary artery disease. Now, just 16% of heart attack patients with depression received antidepressants, compared to 42% of controls with depression. Why the difference there? Uh, in fact, I think it's refreshing that as many as 42% of non-heart attack patients who suffered from depression got treated with medication. That's really a higher than expected rate. But that only 16% of the heart attack patients who were depressed got medication, that is really remarkable. Uh, there's a very, very large extent to which the heart attack patients are undertreated with antidepressants. So when they looked at the participants in the study who had experienced depression, they saw that more than twice as many controls as patients were prescribed antidepressant medication. And they did not ask about cognitive therapies, but it's unlikely that the large gap in treatment was filled in this way. In other words, it's unlikely that instead of getting medication, the heart attack patients got counseling or cognitive behavioral therapy. It appears that the patients who had a heart attack did not seek help for their depression, or if they did, their symptoms were not accurately recognized and managed. An important take-home message is for clinicians to ask patients how they feel and listen to the reply, rather than zoning out because they are stressed themselves. There may not be a specific treatment for stress per se, but if you have too much stress, you may, that may lead to exhaustion and depression. It is an escalating situation. Prevention of stress, exhaustion, and depression is the optimal goal, and clinicians should remember that these are risk factors for many other diseases besides heart attack. One of the researchers concluded that people today have stresses that did not exist before, which may explain some of the findings. Just look at the fact that we're always connected. People check their phones constantly during the day, their email, even in the middle of the night. We never switch off and relax. Even people are checking these things on vacation. The effects of this on health should be investigated further. But even if 
you can't trace the uh, heart attack to life stress or work-related stress. The fact that heart attack patients are suffering from depression and not being treated has to change. This gets back to what we were talking about in the first segment of tonight's podcast in which we found that suicide rates were going up. Depression should be screened for routinely and regularly, especially in people who have a serious acute illness such as a heart attack. Well, next up on psychiatry today, let's turn to a psychiatry and the law update. Now, unfortunately, there are many unscrupulous attorneys who smell a fast buck, and when any kind of negative reports come out about the side effects of certain medical treatments, and psychiatry is no exception, they put commercials on TV <clears throat> advertising for people who have taken those medications or had that medical device or procedure or what have you, had a negative outcome, give out an 800 number to call in the hopes that if they have a large enough number of people who had had a negative outcome with whatever the treatment happened to be, then they can file a class action lawsuit on behalf of this large group of patients who've suffered this negative outcome and uh, squeeze a nice big settlement out of the pharmaceutical company or the medical device company and uh, in the process secure a nice fat contingency fee for themselves. Well, I'm here to tell you that for once, the truth prevailed in one of these situations. For those of you who have seen commercials and late night infomercials about adverse outcomes with Zoloft, specifically that women taking Zoloft while pregnant are at greater risk for birth defects. Here is some extremely reassuring and reaffirming news. A federal judge has dismissed the majority of more than 300 lawsuits filed against Pfizer, the manufacturer of Zoloft, the inventor and original manufacturer. Uh, more than 300 lawsuits dismissed that claim that the use of Pfizer's antidepressant Zoloft, or the generic term sertraline, was linked to birth defects in children whose mothers took the drug during pregnancy. So 300 of these lawsuits charging the Zoloft car's birth defects thrown out. Now, although at least one case is still pending following the decision, United States District Judge Cynthia Roof of the Eastern District of Pennsylvania dismissed most of the other consolidated cases without a trial, saying the plaintiffs had failed to produce adequate evidence showing a plausible link between the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, or SSRI, Zoloft, and birth defects. The court recognizes that the final scientific verdict as to whether Zoloft can cause birth defects may not be delivered for many years. Nevertheless, plaintiffs 
chose to, when they file their cases and the court concludes for the plaintiffs who have continued to pursue their claims, the litigation gates must be closed, according to Judge Roof. We'll continue with more after this break. This is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock for Medicine on Call. On Medicine on Call, we talk about more than medicine. It's about how to take control of your mind, body, and spirit. It's not just your garden. It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties, track and record your garden with photos and notes, share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about how a judge threw out more than 300 lawsuits charging that Zoloft causes birth defects in pregnant women who took it. Now, Pfizer, the manufacturer of Zoloft, also prevailed in two previous jury trials last year that involved similar claims from women in Philadelphia and St. Louis. In those trials, the plaintiffs sought at least $2.4 million in damages. Lawyers for the plaintiffs in those cases argued that Pfizer researchers noted in a core data sheet written before the drug went on the United States market in 1991 that women who were not on birth control should not take Zoloft, owing to the risks for congenital defects. But the information never made it into Zoloft's safety label. Pfizer has maintained that no studies have proven a link between the drug and birth defects. The company said in a statement following the second verdict, while we have great sympathy for families affected by birth defects, This verdict affirms that the Zoloft label contains adequate science-based information on the benefits and risks of the medicine. A range of independent expert organizations, such as the American Psychiatric Association, American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and the American Heart Association, 
have found that Zoloft's use during pregnancy is not associated with birth defects. And the company's statement went on to say there is extensive science supporting the safety and efficacy of Zoloft and the medicine carries accurate science-based and Food and Drug Administration approved information on its benefits and risks. Pfizer's sales of Zoloft reached approximately $3.3 billion in 2005, making the drug the best-selling antidepressant on the market at the time. The company has since lost patent protection on the drug, and several generic versions of sertraline are currently on the market. Zoloft is not the only SSRI to be the subject of litigation over claims of birth defects. Similar allegations were made against GlaxoSmithKline over its antidepressant Paxil, uh, known under the generic name Paroxetine. However, the outcome was much different. In that case, the company agreed to pay more than $1 billion to settle more than 800 cases in 2010. They deemed it economically better, apparently, to settle these cases rather than to uh, go through the cost of litigation. But in doing so, uh, they all but admitted that Paxil might play a role in birth defects. And the, uh, that data have been conflicting among conflicting studies over the years regarding congenital defects linked to SSRI use, paroxetine has stood out. In one meta-analysis, a summary estimate indicated that there was a 50% increase in the prevalence of congenital defects associated with the use of paroxetine during the first trimester. Early results from epidemiologic studies raised enough concern for the Food and Drug Administration to issue a warning of potential congenital cardiac malformations associated with paroxetine use in 2005. Numerous other studies since then have shown, however, that the risk associated with the use of any SSRIs including paroxetine during pregnancy is attenuated after adjustment for confounders. In English, if you take a closer look and do a more detailed analysis of the data of using these SSRI antidepressants during pregnancy, and you take into account confounding factors like other health issues besides just being on an antidepressant, then you really don't see any increase in congenital birth defects, especially cardiac ones, with any antidepressant, including Paxil. In one population-based study that included nearly 16,000 single births in Finland in which exposure to SSRIs occurred, there was no increased risk for congenital malformations, cardiac or otherwise. In fact, that study showed some protective effects for women who underwent treatment with SSRIs during pregnancy 
in comparison with women who did not receive SSRIs. Now, does that mean that taking SSRIs during pregnancy is always considered safe? No, of course it's not. Ideally, it's much safer not to be on it. But the fact that larger looks at the data and more detailed dives into the data have shown it's not a problem um, and in some cases uh, might be protective means that there is uh, no reason to consider uh, class action lawsuits against drug companies uh, over this issue. Um, the fact that there so- seem to be a protective effect uh, certainly is it's not likely that the drug itself uh, protected against congenital malformations. Uh, it may just be that women who were getting treatment for their depression, including taking medication, were taking better overall care of themselves. Now, <clears throat> a recent British study of the use in antidepressants during pregnancy included nearly 9,000 women treated with SSRIs as well as non-SSRIs, either before or during pregnancy, and they found no link to cardiac defects. The study did show that among women receiving antidepressants during pregnancy, there was a higher prevalence of other risk factors associated with cardiac defects, including women smoking, being obese, or having diabetes while pregnant. A, um, a physician who is a member of the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the specifically their Committee on Practice Bulletins in Obstetrics, Dr. Mark Turrentine out of Houston, said that this study underscored the need for closer monitoring when pregnant patients are being treated with antidepressants. He was quoted as saying, I think the important message the OBGYN community took away from that study is that these pregnancies potentially represent a higher risk population. So even if the antidepressant medications are not causative of birth defects, the antipsychotic use is associated with other factors such as smoking, Polypharmacy, meaning being on multiple medications, substance abuse, psychosocial stressors. So those are pregnancies that probably have to be followed closely. What he's saying is these are high-risk situations anyway, regardless of whether they're on the medication. And he added that the dismissal of the Zoloft lawsuits is consistent with the current evidence concerning the safety of SSRI use during pregnancy. He said, as physicians, we look at the available evidence, and that shows that SSRIs have not been proven to cause birth defects. I think the more important issue is, if you don't treat depression, there is a greater risk to the mother and the baby. That is absolutely right. In situations like this, while, again, you cannot say the medication is safe during pregnancy or breastfeeding, to take it a step further, uh, you at least need to take into account 
the negative impact that depression will have on the mother and baby and somehow do something to mitigate that, whether it's medication or not. Now, in December 2011, the Food and Drug Administration issued guidance on the use of SSRIs in pregnancy. The agency recommended healthcare professionals not to alter their current clinical practice of treating depression during pregnancy. And that guidance has continued to stand for the past five years. The bottom line is there is no smoking gun when it comes to antidepressants in pregnancy and birth defects, not even with Paxil, who, uh, that, which uh, a drug that received a more negative rating in pregnancy compared to other antidepressants. Uh, again, a more detailed look at the data shows uh, that was a bum rap, as it were. So whereas it would be best if depression could be treated or prevented without medication, if it's necessary for a woman to take medication during pregnancy, there is absolutely no reason for that woman to be shamed about taking their medication because they're putting their baby at risk and no reason to be fearful of doing so because of these uh, commercials put on TV to drum up lawsuits which have no basis and which, uh, as we've just talked about, have been tossed out of the courtroom and dismissed en masse. Uh, hopefully, in the wake of judges' decisions such as this, uh, we'll soon see an end to uh, lawyers' efforts to drum up these class action lawsuits uh, absent any evidence that the drug really is responsible for the negative outcomes that they claim it is. Um, <clears throat> to be fair, there are certain cases when defective medical treatments uh, need to be brought to the attention of the general public, even if it is by uh, trial attorneys, uh, but to unfairly and inappropriately prey on the fears of the general public without a basis to, uh, I think is highly, highly unethical. And uh, again, hopefully uh, the judge's decisions like this will get that to stop. All right, we're going to take a commercial break. We'll be back with more on psychiatry today with Dr. Scott right after that. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. Well, those of you who are regular listeners to the program will know that I, for one, am very concerned about the trend in the United States toward at least decriminalization of uh, possession and recreational use of marijuana to uh, utter legalization in certain states and jurisdictions. Uh, can My main concern is not any uh, legal or moral judgment, but the adverse medical consequences of marijuana use, including damage to the brain. And I'm about to talk to you about a study uh, done at Columbia University Medical Center in New York City In this study, researchers found evidence of a compromised dopamine system in heavy users of marijuana. Dopamine is a brain chemical that is involved in both mood uh, and perception and movement um, in certain pathways in the brain. It regulates mood. It is our pleasure, reward, motivation chemical and libido, and it's also involved in attention and concentration. And it's also very important for regulation of movement. Parkinson's disease is uh, the result of damage to the dopamine pathways in a different area of the brain, not one that regulates mood, uh, but another dopamine pathway that regulates movement. Now, lower dopamine release was found in an area of the brain called the striatum. This is a region of the brain that's involved in working memory, impulsive behavior, and attention. 
Previous studies have shown that addiction to other drugs of abuse, such as cocaine and heroin, have similar effects on dopamine release. But such evidence for cannabis was missing until now. So again, cannabis and marijuana now can be shown to cause uh, damage to the brain on the same lines as cocaine and heroin. Now, in light of the more widespread acceptance and use of marijuana, especially by young people, it is important to look more closely at the potentially addictive effects of cannabis on key regions of the brain. The study included 11 adults between the ages of 21 and 40 who were severely dependent on cannabis and 12 matched healthy controls. On average, the cannabis-dependent group started using at age 16, became dependent on cannabis by age 20, and have been dependent for the past seven years. In the month prior to the study, nearly all users in the study smoked marijuana daily. Using positron emission tomography to track a radio-labeled molecule that binds to dopamine receptors in the brain, scientists measured dopamine release in the striatum and its subregions, as well as several brain regions outside the striatum, including the thalamus, midbrain, and globus pallidus. These areas are key in terms of uh, relays for sensory and information and uh, integrating memory, uh, as well as movement. Now, the cannabis users in this study stayed in the hospital for a week of abstinence to ensure that the PET scans were not measuring the acute effects of the drug. Participants were scanned before and after being given oral amphetamine to elicit dopamine release. Amphetamine is a dopamine releaser. The percent change in the binding of the radio tracer was taken as an indicator of capacity for dopamine release. Let's explain this a little bit. A PET scanner is somewhat similar in terms of scanning parts of the human body like an MRI or a CT scanner, but the difference is you are using radio-labeled radioactive tracers to look at very specific parts of the body. In, in this particular case, looking at specific pathways in the brain. And what you can do for a study like this is before you put someone in the scanner to see what's going on in the brain, you inject them with a radio-labeled isotope that binds to the dopamine pathways. And the idea of administering the amphetamine was to see the normal level of dopamine release when someone takes amphetamine and you put them in a PET scanner and see if someone who is a regular marijuana user has lower levels of this dopamine release. And that's exactly what they found. Compared with the control group, the cannabis users had significantly lower dopamine release in these areas of the brain that are studied. And again, they're involved in things like associative and sensory motor learning, 
And the investigators also explored the relationship between dopamine release in these areas and cognitive performance on learning and working memory tasks. Although there was no difference between groups in task performance, in all participants, lower dopamine release was associated with worse performance on both tasks. So bottom line to all this, regular cannabis use associated with less dopamine release in key areas of the brain resulting in cognitive problems. Now, scientists admittedly don't know whether the decreased dopamine was a pre-existing condition in people prone to marijuana use or the result of heavy marijuana use. However, long-term heavy cannabis use apparently may impair the dopaminergic system, which could have a variety of negative effects on learning and memory and behavior. Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman, who is the chair of psychiatry at Columbia University Medical Center, where this research was done, and he is also a past president of the American Psychiatric Association, noted that these findings add to the growing body of research demonstrating the potentially adverse effects of cannabis, particularly in youth, at the same time that government policies and laws are increasing access and use. Uh, I could not agree more. I think it's a disturbing trend. We're still learning more and more about the negative consequences of marijuana as uh, laws are being relaxed, uh, access to it being eased, and um, this is becoming more accepted. And apparently um, attitudes uh, that are more relaxed about it are becoming more mainstream, um, so certainly a disturbing trend. I sincerely hope that uh, this will not lead to very serious adverse consequences. By then, it will be too late to reverse these trends. Next up on psychiatry today, if people have to take medication for depression, one of the potential side effects of these medications is weight gain. Well, uh, we've always known that there's one medication that doesn't cause weight gain, but now uh, another study done by a health insurance agency, not a drug company or not depression researchers, confirms what we already knew, that there's one antidepressant that shows the ability to control weight, and that's Welbutrin. Group health researchers have found that Welbutrin, or the generic name Bupropion, is the only antidepressant that tends to be linked to long-term modest weight loss. Previously, group health researchers showed a two-way street between depression and body weight. People with depression are more likely to be overweight and vice versa. These researchers also found that most antidepressant medications have been linked to weight gain. Prior research on antidepressants and weight change was limited to one year or shorter. <clears throat> but many people take antidepressants, the most commonly prescribed medications in the United States, for longer than a year. So for up to two years, 
The new study followed more than 5,000 group health patients who started taking an antidepressant. The Journal of Clinical Medicine published it. The article was called Long-Term Weight Change After Initiating Second-Generation Antidepressants. The study suggests that bupropion is the best initial choice of antidepressants for the vast majority of Americans who have depression and are overweight or obese. But in some cases, an overweight or obese patient has reasons why Welbutrin is not for them, such as someone with a history of seizure disorder or someone with a history of an eating disorder, especially bulimia, but also anorexia. Uh, those eating disorders and seizure disorder are contraindications to treatment with Welbutrin for depression. So for those patients, it would be better to choose another option. But again, they found that Welbutrin is the only antidepressant that tends to be linked with weight loss over a two-year period. All other antidepressants are linked to varying degrees of weight gain, virtually every other one. After two years, non-smokers lost an average of 2.4 pounds on Welbutrin compared with gaining an average of 4.6 pounds on Prozac. So those people who took Welbutrin ended up weighing 7 pounds less than those did on Prozac. Unsurprisingly, the difference wasn't seen in people who smoked. Welbutrin is also used to help people quit smoking, so smokers who take it are likely to be trying to quit and also coping with the weight gain that often accompanies attempts to quit smoking. A large body of evidence indicates no difference in how effectively the newer antidepressants improve people's moods. So it makes sense for doctors and patients to choose antidepressants on the basis of their side effects, costs, and patients' preferences, and now on whether patients are overweight or obese. Welbutrin should be considered the first-line drug of choice for people who are overweight or obese, but patients should consult their doctor about which medication is right for them before making any changes, including starting, switching, or stopping medication. If Welbutrin does have one deficiency, it is not helpful for when anxiety is a primary or serious problem, only for when there is depression and not any serious anxiety. And with that, we're going to wrap up tonight's show. Hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we get together again next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.